Well, just a couple of uh, shepherding thoughts for just a moment. Uh, first of all, if you are relatively new to Grace Bible Church, we haven't had our usual Grace Connect class in a long time, but we are having one on July 12th. As a matter of fact, July 12th is going to be uh, kind of a glorious day in the church. We're going to receive the Lord's Supper together for the first time in quite some time. We'll have Grace Connect all Sunday afternoon, and in the evening we'll have several baptisms. Uh, so that's going to be a, a rich day in the life of the church. Uh, but if you want to do the Grace Connect class, then uh, please go ahead and send us a, an email, graceconnect at gbcob.org, and we'll get you signed up. We want, we'll feed you lunch. We want to make sure you have uh, enough uh, we have enough food for you as well. Uh, and then also, uh, the Lord's sense of humor, I've said publicly, and I guess I shouldn't have said this, I've said publicly, uh, I never want to pastor a church with multiple services and that's family integrated with every child in here. And that's what we're doing now, pretty much both at the same time. So uh, I should have said, I never want to pastor a church with a billion dollars, then we would have that also. <laughs> That being said, one of the reasons that that's always a concern for me is that churches tend to become two churches, and we don't want that. So what I want you to do is go home, and if you have a dartboard, divide it in half. This side is 9 o'clock, this side says 1045, and throw a dart at it, and let the sovereignty of God lead you to whatever service you might sign up for. But don't everybody do that, because then we'll just flip-flop. So uh, I want to encourage you, because I'm seeing the same faces at 1045, same faces at 9, and we want you to mix and mingle um, and, and be the body. We'll get back to normal, but uh, in the meantime, let's make sure and be the whole body of Christ. With that, turn with me to 1 Timothy 1. 1 Timothy 1, and as you're finding that text, I want to kind of make some remarks about some things that are happening in the world today. I don't know if all of you are aware of this, but during the COVID-19 pandemic, the Chinese Communist Party has restarted its long campaign against Christianity. Provincial authorities have banned online religious services. They cannot live stream, even as we're doing right now. Thousands of churches have been defaced, and that's not by vandals, that's by government order. And the Communist Party has restarted its effort, you ready for this, to produce a new translation of the Bible, which is pro-communist and pro-socialism. They want to produce a version of the Bible that is basically propaganda. But Christianity is being attacked in the United States as well. This whole so-called cultural revolution happening in the U.S. today is not, it's not in the dark recesses of the plans of Satan. It's not about stopping racism. It's not about creating justice. It will be and is ultimately aimed at the gospel. And how do we know this? Because we're getting really close to the point already that if the church does not bend to their wishes, then bad things will happen. There's a new breed of radical today that has declared themselves sinless and to be the righteous judge of all others, and already their sights are set on Christians. The Black Lives Matter organization activist Sean King, and isn't it sad how nervous you got when I just said the phrase Black Lives Matter? This past week, Sean King called for the defacing and destruction of church property. It's already begun and it's likely only a matter of time until it's simply a government mandate that makes it okay. This is no longer a war of ideas. Ideas don't matter anymore. Now it's dominance and fear. And when wicked people want to force you to believe their narrative that they call social justice, 
If you say you disagree, now you're guilty of a hate crime. That's two different standards. It's a false standard of righteousness. It's one you can never meet. It's one nobody can ever meet. Do you honestly believe this idea that $14 trillion being paid as reparations for slavery many, many generations ago, when $14 trillion are paid, do you think that Black Lives Matter is going to go on TV and say, racism has been solved, it's done? Of course not. It's a never-ending, self-perpetuating self-righteousness, a personal salvation by works that is wrong. And I want to remind you of this because Satan's agenda is not about racism, it's not about politics, it's not about justice. It's always been the same. Satan's agenda is about stopping the kingdom of God. Satan tried to murder Moses, the representative of God. He tried to murder Jesus, the representative of God, as an infant. He tried to stop Jesus from going to the cross. You remember that when Peter rebuked Jesus and said, no, you shouldn't go to the cross, you shouldn't die. What did Jesus say? Satan, get behind me. Because Satan didn't want Christ to go to the cross. Matthew chapter 4, Satan tempted Jesus with the kingdoms of the world. In other words, to avoid the death on the cross. Because once Jesus died on the cross, the kingdom of Christ began being built. And Satan's agenda is about stopping the kingdom of Christ from progressing forward. That's his primary concern. Satan couldn't care less about Democrat or Republican or liberal or conservative. That is not his agenda. As a matter of fact, Satan deeply yearns to set up his own kingdom, which he will ultimately do for a few years during the Great Tribulation time, which is described in Revelation 6 and in the following chapters. After the rapture of the church, after the taking up of the church, Satan will set up his kingdom. What is being promoted today is a personal salvation by works, whereby you may... Redeem yourself from sin by saying certain words or performing certain actions, but those words and those actions have to be approved by those who have set themselves up as the judge of humanity. And so what do you do? What do you do? How do we deal with this state of affairs? Well, the Apostle Peter told us, you don't have to turn here, but 1 Peter 1, beginning in verse 13. Peter said, Therefore, Preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. So Peter gives us two things to do. First, set your hope on the future coming of Christ, that he will rectify all things. He will bring true, actual justice. He will bring those who claim to be righteous to true justice as well. And so we set our hope on the future coming of Christ. This is why our eschatology, our study of the end times is so important. That's what gives us hope. And the second thing Peter says to do, in the meantime, be holy because God is holy, or to put it this way, Be effective disciples. Be effective disciples. That's what we do. And that's what I want to talk to you about this morning. We've just begun 1 Timothy 1, and we're concerning ourselves with what I'm calling the beautiful bride of Christ. What we're doing is examining the preparation, the beautification, so to speak, of the bride of Christ for all eternity with Christ. The elements of our preparation and our beautification. Last week, we started with the element of New Testament preaching. 
that the church must have New Testament preaching. That's how we become more like Christ, and we saw that exemplified by the Apostle Paul. Well, this morning I'd like to look at another element of the church's preparation we'll call effective disciples. Effective disciples. And we begin once again, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Timothy provides for us one of our stellar examples of an effective disciple. And so very simply this morning, what I want to do is give you six descriptors of an effective disciple. We'll use Timothy as our model. Six descriptors of an effective disciple. Plus, I'm going to give you a bonus descriptor that is for some of you, not all of you. And I'll explain that when we get to it. But six descriptors for now, then a bonus descriptor. First descriptor of an effective disciple. An effective disciple is, we'll call this a learner at heart. A learner at heart. Disciple is the English translation of the Greek word mathetes. It's related to the, the Greek word meaning to learn. So a disciple is a learner. Our English word disciple comes from the Latin word discipulus, which means learner. So the, the translation is very, very accurate. Now this word comes into sudden prominence in the New Testament. In, in your English Old Testament, there's one time you see the word disciple. You get to the New Testament and you see mathetes 261 times. And so there's a huge explosion of the idea of being a disciple. Now it's important for you to know that the word disciple is used three different ways in the New Testament. The first way it's used is used in the technical sense. The technical sense means the 12 whom Jesus chose to minister with him. Matthew 10, verse 1, he called to him his 12 disciples. And that's the primary usage in the New Testament. That's the one you're most familiar with. But there's a second usage. It's used in the sense of all the faithful who follow Christ, everyone who's a Christian. Jesus used it this way in the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 19. Go, therefore, and make what? Disciples of all nations. But... It's used a third way. It's also used in the sense of false followers of Christ who later fall away. They turn away from him. John 6, verse 66. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. And obviously at that point, they're not disciples anymore. But Timothy is an example to us of the second sense, the faithful who follow Christ. And by the way, just to give you a side note, there is a there is a line of thinking that says there are two levels of Christians, the Christian and the disciple, the one who's really spiritual. And we reject that wholeheartedly. Ephesians 1 tells us that we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. All Christians are disciples of Christ. Now, how effective you are, that's a whole other matter. That's my topic for this morning. But Timothy is an example of this second sense, the faithful who follow Christ. Paul calls him here in the text, my true child in the faith. He uses almost the same phrase in 2 Timothy to greet Timothy. 2 Timothy 1-2 to Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God. So Timothy isn't just a friend. He's not just a pal. He's not a buddy. He is a true child in the faith. It's their faith that bonds them. Just like it's our faith that bonds us together. Paul used a similar phrase in Titus 1 verse 4 
in which Titus, a Gentile, by the way, is also called Paul's son. Titus 1, verse 4, to Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Jesus Christ Jesus our Savior. And so we see that it has nothing to do with family ties, has everything to do with being tied into Christ. And then here in our text, Paul gives his common greeting of wishing grace and mercy and peace. Paul is always centered on the gospel, and those three words encapsulate the entirety of the gospel message. Grace, receiving the blessings of salvation that you don't deserve. Mercy, not receiving the dire consequences of your sin that you do deserve. And peace, the reconciliation that is the result of grace and mercy. Our reconciliation with God. And so if you want to memorize a very easy gospel presentation, grace, mercy, and peace. But what I want to focus on for a moment is Paul's phrase that Timothy is his true child. Same thing he told Titus. You are my true child. True here is not the usual word translated true 26 times in the New Testament. This is a rarely used word. It's just used four times. And it's always used by Paul, and it speaks of something that is genuine, something that is authentic, something that is real. For example, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 8, verse 8, prove that your love is genuine. It's the same word. So what is it that is authentic about Timothy? Well, he's a genuine spiritual child of Paul, meaning he's allowed Paul to be a spiritual father to him, meaning he's allowed Paul to influence him. And that's the crux of the matter. An effective disciple has teachers. An effective disciple has influencers. You should be able to point back to those who have influenced you. Who are the the people who have come into your life and who have influenced you, who have taught you, who have trained you, who have brought the word of God to you? Dawson Trotman, the founder of Navigators, very famously would ask, when someone would say, I want to be a leader, in navigators or a leader in the church, he would say, show me your men. In other words, show me those you have discipled. Show me those you have taught. And then also show me your men. Show me those who have taught you, who have trained you, who have brought you along. Timothy could point back to his spiritual DNA, as it were, to Paul, who had in many ways made him who he was as a Christian. And Paul, in fact, continued to influence him. He, he never said, Timothy never said, I, I think I've learned enough. I know enough. I had somebody uh, tell me once in the ministry, well, I don't come to Sunday evening church because I really feel like I, I understand that material now. And I just said, would you be willing to take a test on what I'm going to preach next week? You really understand it. Timothy continued to learn. Paul continued to have a massive impact in his life. It's Paul writing to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, verse 2, where we get our classic description of what discipleship is. Paul told Timothy... And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Did you catch the four generations of discipleship? Paul, Timothy, those whom Timothy teaches and those whom he teaches teach. In fact, Paul encouraged Timothy himself to never stop being a learner. Never stop learning. 2 Timothy 2.15 Paul told him, do, yourself, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Those of you who grew up in Awana, you're going, yay, approved workers are not ashamed. Awana, you get that. 
But it's very interesting that the older translation made an assumption about what it means to do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. Older translations say study to show yourself approved. That that's what it means to do your best. So the effective disciple is a learner at heart. You never stop learning. You never stop growing. This is what I love about preaching the word of God because there is not a week that goes by that I'm not telling you something that I learned for the first time. We love that. We cherish that. So what do you do with what you've learned? Well, that brings us to our second descriptor of an effective disciple. We'll call this one a funnel of truth. A funnel of truth. And we're going to go to a couple of other texts now. I want to have you turn with me to Acts chapter 16. Go back just a few pages. Acts chapter 16. And this is where we're first introduced to Timothy as Paul comes to the city of Lystra on his second missionary journey. And we see young Timothy for the first of a couple of dozen times in Scripture. Acts chapter 16, beginning in verse 1. Continuing his second missionary journey, Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He, that is Timothy, was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. So we're in the city of Lystra in Asia Minor. There were some Jews living there. One of them was an older woman named Lois. She had a daughter named Eunice. Eunice had married a Greek man. This was not unusual in the scattered state of the Jews all over the world now. And they had a son named Timothy. Lois and Eunice were what the New Testament calls God-fearers, those who worship God. They weren't Christians. They weren't regenerate. They weren't born again. They didn't know about Christ. They didn't have the entire gospel. But they were earnestly seeking after the Lord. They were seeking to know who is this Messiah spoken of in the Old Testament. So they had incomplete information. They loved the Old Testament scriptures. They studied them diligently. They taught the scripture diligently to Timothy from the time he was a little boy. They would have taught him to look for a savior. They would have taught him to look for a Messiah. There's no mention of Timothy's father except that he was a Greek. That is shorthand for saying he didn't accept the gospel of Christ. He didn't worship the God of the Jews. And he certainly was a non-participant, at least spiritually speaking, in Timothy's life. Now, earlier, during Paul's first missionary journey, he and his fellow missionary Barnabas had come to the city of Lystra in Asia Minor. This is recorded in Acts 14. They preached the gospel there. They explained from the Old Testament that the Messiah must be Jesus Christ, must be the one who died on the cross, must be the one who was resurrected to pay for the sins of his people. And these two Jewish women, Lois and her daughter Eunice, and young Timothy were converted under the preaching of Paul. They finally knew who Messiah was. So Paul led Timothy to Christ. He led Eunice to Christ. And he led Lois to Christ. Now, while he was in Lystra, in Acts 14, Paul had performed a miracle there on a man who had been crippled from birth. And the chapter says he sprang up and began walking. Well, the response of the crowds was kind of surprising. They thought that this must be some of their gods come down from the heavens to be men. And so they began to fall down and worship Paul and Barnabas. And he, as you can imagine, that was upsetting to them. Paul and Barnabas tore their garments in grief. They cried out to the crowds, why are you doing this? We're men just like you. 
And they preached the gospel and they pointed all glory to God through Christ. And Timothy was watching all of that. The reason Paul and Barnabas were in Lystra in the first place, the the previous cities they were in, Antioch and Iconium, had jealous Jews who tried to have them killed, but Paul and Barnabas escaped. But some of these Jews actually went to the trouble to follow Paul, follow Barnabas to Lystra, and began stirring up the crowds, kind of like the riots today are being stirred up by people who travel to do it. Same thing happening then. They stirred up the crowd and had Paul stoned so badly that they dragged his body outside the city and they left him for dead. But he wasn't dead. The believers gathered around him. Paul recovered enough to come back into the city. And very strong church tradition said that Paul stayed the night there to nurse his wounds. And he stayed in the home of Lois, Eunice, and Timothy. And guess who saw all this? Guess who saw a man be stoned almost to death for the sake of Christ? Guess who saw the preaching of the word of God cost somebody so dearly? This young teenager, Timothy. And this is why Paul could tell Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, 10 and 11, you have fully known. In other words, you were there for all of it. You have fully known my persecutions and afflictions which came to me at Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra. Now we fast forward five years later. Now we're back in Acts 16. Paul has returned to Lystra. Paul is reconnected with Lois, Eunice, and Timothy. Timothy's now in his early 20s. And so what had, Paul, what had Timothy been doing for these past five years or so? Well, his mother and his grandmother had been faithful to teach him the scriptures all the way from his youth, 2 Timothy 3.15. And to Paul's delight, he found that Timothy had been a faithful servant and a faithful preacher and teacher in the churches, both in Lystra and Iconium, two different cities. Without any prompting other than that of the Holy Spirit, Timothy had begun teaching others what he had learned from a very young age. And so Paul took on Timothy to be his his disciple, his missionary companion, Paul as his mentor, with Paul aiming to reproduce his own life in the life of Timothy. Timothy's father wasn't really a spiritual father at all, but God provided a father for him in Paul. And Paul had led Timothy to Christ and now regarded him as a son. Timothy leaves home. He leaves his mother, leaves his grandmother to share the apostles' missionary labors and sufferings. And he becomes a funnel of the truth. That's what an effective disciple does. You don't just learn to fill your head with knowledge. You learn so that you might pass it on to others. Years ago, when I first started in the ministry, I read a statement which literally turned my thinking upside down. It changed drastically how I think about ministry. And frankly, it changed everything I do in the ministry. And that simple phrase was, don't make disciples, make disciple makers. That's a huge difference. Don't make disciples only, make those who can reproduce themselves. In other words, the most effective disciples are the ones who are funneling what they've learned into the lives of others. That should be what we're doing. Mothers with their young children, little disciples who are trapped in your house for 18 to 20 years, and you, and you have the time to pour into their lives. Workers with co-workers, older believers with younger believers, young married couples with newlywed couples, older couples with middle-aged couples, every configuration you can imagine. One of the major goals in your life should be to ask the question, how am I replicating myself in someone else's life? Pray about this. Look for this. Ask God to help with this. 
You don't have to be the one who preaches to the masses. You just be the one who takes one person along your side and says, let me tell you what I know. You know, if you've been a Christian for three months and you know how to find John 3, 16 and you have to use the table of contents to do it, that's okay. You can still find somebody who doesn't even know that and disciple them. Have you been through fundamentals of the faith? Then order a book and take somebody else through it. Are you enjoying your small group? Bring somebody with you. Have you learned from a particular sermon? Share it online. I, I mean, this is the easiest thing in the world. You have the little button that you can just push that shares a sermon. I mean, talk about discipleship handed you on a silver platter. Why was it that Paul was able to ultimately send Timothy to Ephesus, as we read in 1 Timothy, as his representative? Very simply because Timothy would do what Paul would have done. He would replicate himself with the word of God. Timothy would be a funnel for the truth. And that brings us very easily to the third descriptor of an effective disciple. We'll call this one a trustworthiness with his leaders. A trustworthiness with his leaders. We'll spend the rest of our time now in Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 19. Philippians 2 is very helpful for us because it contains a short resume of Timothy. Paul is telling the Philippian church that he's hoping to send Timothy to them soon. And so Paul explains why Timothy can be trusted, he can be received, he can be respected. The Apostle Paul is in his first prison term in Rome when he writes the letter to the Philippians. And we see his introduction to Timothy. Chapter 2, verse 19. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon that I too may be cheered by news of you. Then in verse 23 again, I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. So Paul had in the past and was hoping soon to send Timothy out as his representative, an apostolic representative. Now I think it's helpful at this point to take a little side note and I want to tell you about apostles and why the representative nature of representing an apostle was such a big deal. Apostles were a one-time feature of the church. These were men specially called and gifted by God to evangelize, to govern, to teach the church of Jesus Christ. They were appointing elders. They were planting churches. They were very, very unique. We don't have apostles today. We don't need apostles today because we have what they taught. We have our New Testament, what Acts 2 calls the apostles' teaching. Just so you know, none of the generation of the church fathers immediately following all the apostles, not one of them claimed to be an apostle, and none of the actual apostles ever appointed another apostle, with one exception, with great prayer they appointed Matthias to replace Judas in Acts chapter 1. That's the only time. The apostles carried the highest weight of authority in the church as they were commissioned and called directly by God. They were all men who had seen Jesus Christ, the apostle Paul, in a vision on the road to Damascus. But they had all seen Christ. They had all been taught by Christ. So for Paul to send Timothy as an apostolic representative to say whatever Timothy says is what I would say is a big deal. It's very indicative of the level of trust that Paul had in Timothy because Timothy would do what Paul would have done. And as you can imagine, Timothy would have to learn, earn this trust over a long period of time. And that's exactly what he did. They served together for at least 16 years, perhaps longer than that. Timothy was with Paul, Silas, and Luke when they first arrived in Philippi. And 
Timothy got to see and experience a church plant firsthand when Paul and Silas were arrested and beaten in Philippi. Timothy and Luke, for some reason, weren't included in that. And again, Timothy got to see Paul's courage. He got to see his stand for the gospel. Luke stayed behind in Philippi to assist in the new church. Paul, Timothy, and Silas continued on. Paul and Silas still hurting from their beating. They walked 100 miles to Thessalonica, a city with a high Jewish population. And as per his custom, Paul began preaching the gospel where? In the synagogue. He showed that Jesus Christ fulfilled the Old Testament prophecies of Messiah and is the promised Savior. And as usual, it seems, things heated up again in Thessalonica. So the three of them had to leave after only a couple of months, but they left behind a baby church that we know from church history would grow and thrive. They went on to Berea, planted a church there. Then they went on to Athens. And while they were in Athens, Paul wrote his first letter back to the Thessalonians, and he sent it back with Timothy. And he instructed Timothy to teach and to disciple this new church for a time. First Thessalonians 3 tells us that. Now this is important, because keep this in mind. At this point, Timothy is in his early, maybe mid-twenties. And yet his understanding of the scriptures and his having been constantly around Paul qualified him now for this first solo assignment to go back to Thessalonica. Well, in the years to come, Paul would send Timothy on many of these types of assignments as Paul's representative. Paul had moved on to Corinth and Timothy joined him there, helping in the ministry for 18 months. And the, the very last part of the book of Acts doesn't record where Timothy was all the time. But we do see him when he visits Paul once again in prison in Rome, right at the time when Paul wrote this letter to Philippians. And more and more and more, Timothy became the go-to guy for Paul. He became the man that Paul sent as his personal representative. Paul sent Timothy as his representative to the Corinthian church, to the Thessalonian church, possibly to the Philippian church. We don't know if he ever made it to Philippi or not. But what a gift to Paul. What a gift to the church. Somebody who's so, so trustworthy. And you ought to be that incredible gift to the church. Somebody who's trustworthy with your leaders. I got to tell you, there is a joy and a delight for me as a pastor that's almost indescribable when I can simply speak to someone who's in need and point them to one of you and say, go talk to them because they would say the same thing I would say. There's great joy in that. There's tremendous pleasure in that. There's a joy when the elders can entrust important tasks and responsibilities to others because we all share the same heart, the same doctrine, the same knowledge, the same God, that there's not going to be secret divisiveness. There's not going to be self-serving actions. There's not going to be a sense in which Pastor Steve sent me to talk to you. Uh, he would actually say this, and I totally disagree with that. Here's what I would say, that that's not going to happen. For Paul to send Timothy on his behalf meant he had 100% confidence that Timothy would never betray Paul, wouldn't undercut Paul in any way. They labored for the same Lord, for the sake of the same gospel, building the same kingdom. And so Paul could send him as if he himself were coming. What was it about Timothy that Paul so trusted? Well, this is our fourth descriptor of an effective disciple. We'll call this one a yearning to be biblical. A yearning to be biblical. Back in Philippians 2, verse 20, Paul gives a reason for sending Timothy. For I have no one like him. I have no one like him. In Greek, it literally says, I have no one 
who thinks the same way as much as Timothy does. I have no one who is so like-minded, no one so much like myself. Paul recognized something in Timothy that was so much like Paul that it was easy for Paul to teach him and to train him. They, they shared brain cells almost. Timothy would see things the way Paul did. His discernment was keen like Paul's. But what was it that gave them this commonality? Why did Paul so trust Timothy? I think the thing they had in common more than anything else was the fact that both of them had been taught the scriptures from the time they were a little boy. Both of them. And so Paul is saying, if I send you Timothy, it's like I myself am coming. Whatever he says is what I would have said. Whatever he thinks you should do is what I would think you should do. Now, you might ask the question, what, what do you mean, think like Paul? How does thinking like Paul equate to thinking biblically? Well, the logic is very simple. The Holy Spirit superintended or used Paul and inspired Romans First and Second Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, First and Second Thessalonians, First and Second Timothy, Titus, Philemon, and maybe Hebrews as well. That is half of our New Testament, and that's everything we know about Paul. So, can I put it this way? If you're thinking like Paul, you're on safe ground. You are thinking biblically. Timothy, like Paul, had a yearning to think God's thoughts, to filter everything through Scripture. Now, we've said that a thousand times here. You should filter everything through Scripture. And I think any Christian, even any professing Christian, would say, yeah, I I believe the Bible. I want to think biblically. But the minute you start asking specific questions, very often that's when you hit the dead end. How do you think biblically about Black Lives Matter? Oh, I I don't know. How do you think biblically about abortion? Well, I I don't know. How do you think biblically about how to manage your money? Uh, I don't know. So we say that in theory. And so it's a very, very broad application, and I know that. But So what I want to do is boil that application down to a very simple question, which you can use to filter every single thing in your life biblically. Very simple question. Here it is. Why am I doing this? Why am I doing this? For everything you don't have a ready answer to that question, I would encourage you to be aware that your culture has already spoken into your life more than than the Scriptures have. And so if you're a brand new believer, that means taking stock of everything in your life. I want to give you some example. I just picked some questions at random, the ones that I wanted to randomly pick. (laughs) Let me give you examples of this why question that you might ask yourself. Why are you trying to be financially responsible? Because Proverbs 27, 23 says, know well the condition of your flocks and give attention to your herds. That's financial responsibility. Why are you spending time and energy leading your family to serve in the church? Because Romans 12, 6 says, having gifts that differ according to the grace given us, let us use them. Why are you having fun with your family? Oh, wait a minute. There's no fun in the Bible. The Bible's not about fun. Yes, it is. Because Ephesians 6, 4 says, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. In other words, don't be so hard and so difficult that they can never be good enough, they can never measure up. And to let them know that you love them means you build a relationship with them. And to build a relationship with them, you have experiences with them. And to have experiences with children, what do they relate to? Fun! That's why when dads have a bunch of little boys, we're all excited. I get to play video games and it's spiritual? Why are you enduring a difficult marriage with grace and hope and patience? 
Because Ephesians 5 speaks of marriage for both husbands and wives as being unto the Lord. Why are you content at a job that is not fulfilling and maybe has you working for a difficult person? Because Colossians 3.23 reminds you that whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord. Why do you insist that your daughters dress modestly and not seductively? 1 Timothy 2.9 Women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control. Why? Because I don't want to put my daughters accidentally in the role of a tempter, such as Proverbs 5.3 The lips of a forbidden woman drip honey and her speech is smoother than oil. Why? Because young men are warned about those young ladies. Proverbs 6.25 Do not desire her beauty in, her, in your heart and do not let her capture you with her eyelashes. Why do you insist that your sons be manly and hardworking? Because 1 Timothy 5.8 says, But if anyone, masculine pronoun, any man, does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. How can a Christian man be worse than an unbeliever? Because even unbelievers bring home a paycheck. And 1 Corinthians 16.13 tells us, Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men. Be strong. Man is a standard of behavior, and men ought to aspire to it. Why do you keep forgiving someone and not holding bitterness against them? Because Jesus commanded in Luke 17 that as many times as someone repents, you forgive them. Doesn't mean that relationship is suddenly built on trust. That's another topic for another day. But no Christian has the right to withhold forgiveness. Not one of you do. How about this one? Why do you clean your house and keep things tidy? Well, that's, that can't be spiritual. It is. You do so because Proverbs 31 describes a household in which a woman has made home an incredible place of refuge and joy, not chaos and disruption. And that place of refuge and joy includes the hard work of keeping it presentable. It's a spiritual act of what Proverbs 31 calls a woman who fears the Lord, who shall be praised. And one that I try to bring up twice a year, regardless of what I'm preaching. Why do you spank your children despite what our culture says? Because Proverbs 13, 24 says, Whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. That's not what our culture says. In fact, even, even in the church, some have tried to redefine rod as being some sort of, uh, some sort of, uh, kind of ethereal idea. Some have even said, well, it's actually the rod of like a king who has a scepter and, and it's the idea of ruling with authority. No, rod in Hebrew means stick. And we've said before that even, even the Hebrew word sounds like a spanking. The Hebrew word for rod is Shabbat. <laughs> and that's how you remember it. You have to have a yearning to be biblical because if you don't, no one's going to do it for you and you will be sucked into your culture and you will become just like the world. You will become, if I can put it this way, what we're going to talk about tonight, you will become like that which you worship. You should have a yearning to be biblical. That makes you an effective disciple. Let me give you a fifth descriptor of an effective disciple. We'll call this a love for Christ's people. A love for Christ's people. Philippians 2, verse 20, again, for I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. Timothy was in Philippi when the church was born. 
Can you imagine that joy? Seeing a new church come about? He watched many of these come to faith in Christ. He taught them along with Paul. He developed their faith and their theology, their trust in the Lord. Timothy was genuinely concerned. And interestingly, this is related to the word Paul used to describe Timothy as my true son. It's a different word, but related. This word comes from a Greek word that means birthright or from birth, or to put it this way, something you are born with. Timothy didn't have a genuine concern for the Philippians because Paul told him to or because he read it as part of his job description. He had a concern and a passion that was natural and it flowed from his regenerated heart and from the particular spiritual gifting that Paul had given him. As a matter of fact, Timothy was quite sensitive. He was a a tender soul, and this could actually work to his detriment at times. Paul had to remind him at times to stand firm against false teachers. But his tenderness, his sensitivity was an advantage in the ministry. An advantage in the ministry. I, I have a friend who is a pastor, and before he was a pastor, he was a Navy SEAL. And his biblical counseling is perhaps not as tender as it could be. And he told me on the phone, I asked him, what, what did you do when so-and-so came to you and set, poured out their heart? He said, I said, so, suck it up. <laughs> Probably not the best idea. That wasn't Timothy, though. He was sensitive. He was caring. He had a compassionate heart. Paul didn't have to tell Timothy, you need to care. You need to be compassionate. You need to be kind. You need to be very, very careful with these people. He would just do it. And shouldn't that characterize the heart of a true believer? That you're tender, you're kind, you have a love for Christ's people, you have a desire to be with them and to serve them and to love love them. Listen, you should discipline yourself to always see one another through the lens of mercy, through the lens of compassion, through the lens of, of believing the best. All of us want to believe that everyone we know, in the heart of hearts, in their mind of minds, in the most private places, Think only the best of you all the time, right? We don't consider the alternative because it's too scary. We don't consider that. What do you do if someone is upset with you? Listen to them until they tell you that you've been listening. What do you do if there's something between you and another? Do whatever it takes to make it right, even if that means saying, I'm going to take the lower position. I'm going to say, you may be right and I shall be wrong. What do you do when somebody has something against you and it seems irreconcilable? You get down low and you say, Philippians 2 says, I ought to consider you as more important than myself. My own needs don't matter. This relationship is what matters. What do you do if somebody bravely comes and says, you have hurt me? If you push back, if you say, oh, let me give you these five excuses, what have you just done? There's a word for that today. That's called bullying. No, when somebody has a problem with you, listen. Just listen and be compassionate. I'll tell you what, you know what Paul did with Timothy? He sent him back to Ephesus to do what? To confront the elders of the church, first and foremost. He sent the sensitive soul. And Timothy went. I sort of imagine him Paul kind of pushing him and skidding his feet along the way. But he did it. Paul trusted his compassionate heart. But beyond being compassionate, beyond loving Christ's people, let me give you one more, a sixth descriptor of an effective disciple. 
a passion for Christ's glory. A passion for Christ's glory. Philippians 2.21 For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. They all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. Who are they? Well, you recall that Paul is, pre, is, is writing from Rome where he's been imprisoned. The church in Rome, when he's writing Philippians, the church in Rome had its strengths, but like any church, it had its members who were strong in the faith, and then it had the other 90%. Paul alluded to some of these in Philippians 1 when he spoke of those who preached the gospel for selfish ambitions. He had just given the same reminder earlier in the chapter, Philippians 2, verse 4, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. These in Philippians 1, who were pushing back against the Apostle Paul, who were pushing back against his authority, pushing back against his calling, pushing back against his teaching, pushing back against his position. And now we're even mocking him. Anybody who's been in church leadership has seen this before. I, in my short time in the ministry, I have seen men who used to call me Pastor Steve five years later literally poke a finger in my chest and say, who do you think you are? Because they lost touch with who they are. They lost touch with who Christ is. And they didn't ask the question, is that glorifying Christ? Timothy, though, wasn't like that. Paul tells us that Timothy didn't seek his own interests, but the interests of Jesus Christ. Every situation was filtered through the question, what would glorify Christ in this instance? This is to be the concern of the effective disciple as well. Remember I said that the great question to ask about everything is very simply, why am I doing this? Another great question to ask is, what would most glorify and honor Christ in this situation? What would elevate his name? What would give his name, can I put it this way, a positive connotation? What would make those around me think more of Christ? God is passionate for his own glory. He's certainly passionate for the glory of Christ. I don't think we fully grasp how passionate for his own glory God is. Malachi chapters 1 and 2 records God's displeasure with the priests and the leadership of Israel who were not concerned with the glory of God. Listen to this. Not only do we see God's passion for his own glory, but we're going to see here in the text I'm about to read his threat against those who will not glorify him. And it's shocking. It's shocking. Malachi 1, beginning in verse 14. You don't have to turn there. Just listen. God is speaking to the leaders of Israel. Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. Stop right there. What does he mean? It's telling God, do you see this most perfect of little lambs that I'm going to give to you? I'm going to sacrifice this to you. This will be my guilt offering or my burnt offering or my sin offering. And I'm going to bring this to you. And then he does a switcheroo and brings the little three-legged lamb with one eye that isn't going to make it past next week and brings the cheap thing. And the priests were doing this as well. If you will not take it to heart, he goes on, to honor my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them because you do not lay it to heart. That's the, that's the warning. What has he said? He said, I'm about to warn you, but here's his reasoning. He says, for I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. Someone might say, isn't that kind of arrogant 
uh, would be, except for one problem. It's true. I am a great king, God says, because he is. Here's his threat. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring. And I want you to picture, here's the situation. The priest or the unfaithful person is bringing this un, un, unsavory, blemished sacrifice in disobedience to God, bringing this sacrifice. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. What a picture. The priest bringing this blemished offering to the Lord and the offering does its business on the ground and God says, I'm going to scoop that up and smear it in your face because that's what you've done to me. You've not glorified me and I will send you away literally with dung on your face. Apparently God's glory is important to him. Of course it is because he's infinitely and perfectly worthy of all glory. And this is what gave Paul such confidence in Timothy. Timothy filtered all his ministry through what will glorify Christ. We've asked that question sometimes in elders meetings. We have three or four options before us, none of which are are really clear. All right, what would glorify Christ? What would give God honor? As a matter of fact, Timothy's focus on and his passion for what would glorify Christ made him useful, made him valuable to the church. Chapter 2, verse 22 But you know Timothy's proven worth, his proven worth. You know, in the church, we're often so happy when someone will volunteer to do something that the only qualifier we have is that they have a heartbeat. And now that you have a temperature that's reasonable as well. But that is not, in fact, scriptural at all. It's it's a privilege to serve in the church. And as a pastor, I'm not inclined to trust someone who displays an attitude that says everyone should be grateful that I'm condescending to serve. To serve Christ is a privilege. It is not a right. We serve Christ, not men. The scripture calls us to have a criteria by which someone, particularly someone in servant leadership, can serve. 1 Timothy 3 gives these qualifications. But Timothy was proven. He had been faithful in little things, and so Paul could entrust him with more and more bigger things. One of my spiritual heroes, one of the heroes of my faith, Pastor Tommy Nelson, been in the ministry for four and a half decades now and during that time he's discipled hundreds of men and he does so in a very inconvenient manner you show up to his house at five thirty or 6 in the morning four days a week you can't be married you can't have a girlfriend you can't even have more than than a part-time job because he's going to ruin your life for 12 months while he disciples you and i'll never forget him telling a story about one of these young men who wanted to go into the ministry and many of the men he's discipled have gone into the ministry And one of these young men asked for a recommendation for a pastorate. And Tommy said, no, I will not give you a recommendation. Why not? I I completed your program. And Tommy told him, why would I recommend that you go be the one trusted by a church when you didn't show up on time at least half the time? You didn't do the little things. You were not proven. Timothy was proven. And it was his passion for Christ's glory which drove him to this proven faithfulness. And so Timothy is a model of an effective disciple is described by being a learner at heart, a funnel of truth, trustworthiness to his leaders, a yearning to be biblical, a love for Christ's people, and a passion for Christ's glory. 
I told you I'd give you a seventh descriptor of an effective disciple. This is bonus material because this is not for everyone. This is for maybe a few of you. Maybe for a few young men. Maybe even for a few boys who are listening to this. And this seventh descriptor of an effective disciple we'll call a life for the gospel. A life for the gospel. Chapter 2, verse 22. But you know Timothy's proven worth. How as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. It is not often that a man will say of a non-biological son, he is a son to me. That's very, very special. Paul has been a tremendous laborer for the gospel. And all this time, Timothy has kept up. He's been right there with him. Timothy has been right there doing whatever Paul asked him to do. He's never sought glory, never sought honor, never sought thanks. That's one of the things we love about Timothy because he's so humble. And you read anywhere you read about Timothy, he just comes across as somebody we want to be like. He was diligent. He was faithful. And this goes all the way back to that time that we saw in Acts 16 when Paul again came to Lystra and he found Timothy and he picked him up. Because 1 Timothy 4.14 tells us that Paul organized an ordination service where the elders of the church at Lystra laid hands on Timothy, which was a symbolic way of recognizing that God had gifted him for the gospel ministry. And so for some of you men, and maybe for some of you boys, I want to put out a call to the ministry of the gospel. Sometimes people wonder, well, how, how do you become a pastor? And it feels like this like weird, enchanted, magical thing. Like, you know, Steve, were you born with a tie? And, and did somebody put a Bible in your hand in the hospital right when, when they were uh, taking care of you? No. God calls men, and he transforms them over time. And so I want to urge some of you men and some of you boys hearing this, give up your own dreams. Set your heart on the things of God. Set your heart on the things of God's people. Give up your life and give your life to the Lord. Now, over time, you'll need to demonstrate a giftedness. You'll need to demonstrate a desire. And if that continues by God's leading, then give up your life. Give up your dreams of the big house. Give up your dreams of the the well-funded IRA. Give up your dreams of traveling all over the world. Give up your dreams of anything except asking for usefulness in the kingdom. Be trained in the church. Go to Bible college. Learn the word of God. Go to seminary. Be tested. Be approved. Because I'll tell you what, the church of Jesus Christ always, always needs good, gifted, godly men for two reasons. First of all, to eventually take over the pulpits of the faithful before them. And the second reason, to take away the pulpits of the faithless who are polluting the churches today. So we need men. So I want to plant the thought in the hearts of young men and boys to test yourselves, to sign up for the greatest challenge and the most important job in human history, to declare the word of God to a dying world. I want to plant the thought that perhaps you might like to be like Timothy, well-trained, well-taught, useful to the church. How about this? I want to plant the thought that you be like the Old Testament man, Ezra, Ezra 7.10, for Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord, to do it, and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. What is a pastor? He's somebody who studies the word, who does the word, and teaches the word. And I want to encourage you, there is nothing greater to which you can give your life. 
you will never get to the end of your life and say, wow, all those souls that I saw come to faith in Christ, the hours and hours of discipleship, the decades of opening the word of God, the wearing out of pieces of furniture by having my, my hands gripping these pieces of furniture to proclaim God's word, the Bibles I have worn out, the lack that I went through, the fact that we lived a modest life. You will never say, I would trade all that in for the yacht and the country club I could have had. You'll never say that, I promise you. Well, as you know from our previous message in 1 Timothy 1, eventually Paul left Timothy in Ephesus as a long-term representative essentially the head pastor, to clean up the doctrine and practice of the church in Ephesus. While he was in Ephesus, Paul wrote, wrote Timothy two letters, First and Second Timothy, to encourage him to be faithful to preach the scriptures alone, to be courageous in his confrontation and opposition of false teaching, to be an example to others, and to be a good soldier of Christ. When Paul was at the end of his ministry, the end of his life, Ironically, after having served so, so faithfully for decades, Paul was all alone. He was left alone, and he longed for the company of one man. He wanted Timothy. During Paul's second and final Roman imprisonment in his second letter to Timothy, he asked Timothy to come to him. Paul was now all alone, and Paul wanted Timothy to bring him his coat, his books, and his parchments What kind of relationship did Paul have with Timothy? What Paul just asked Timothy in that letter was to travel 1,000 miles on foot, leave everything you're doing. And Paul had total confidence that Timothy, in his character, would fully drop what he was doing and come to his spiritual father, Paul. One of the great mysteries of the New Testament is the fact that Scripture doesn't tell us if Timothy made it to Paul before Paul was executed. I hope he did. While Timothy was serving in Ephesus, he was imprisoned at least once. Hebrews 13 tells us this. And Paul's final admonition, his final command, after, after years and years of ministering into the, the life of Timothy and seeing Timothy minister and all of the thousands of discussions they must have had, the final admonition Paul gave to Timothy, he said in 2 Timothy 4, beginning in verses 1 and 2, I charge you, in other words, I'm asking you to swear to me, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. And Timothy did so. And he stayed faithful in Ephesus, overseeing all the churches there, most think until about the mid-90s A.D. Idolatry and pagan worship was the prevailing culture in Ephesus. And no doubt Timothy thought often about his father in the faith, Paul, long since now gone home to heaven as a martyr. Timothy was on the earth 30 years after Paul. I would imagine he thought about how courageous Paul was for the gospel, the beatings he endured, the humiliation, the diligence to preach the true gospel. And I wonder how many times he thought about how Paul faithfully and gently laid his head on an executioner's block on a road outside of Rome and submitted to being beheaded as his final act of service to Christ on this earth. You know, our mentors in the faith, our disciple makers, have a huge influence on us. They have a lifetime influence. And Timothy was no different. He would make his spiritual father, Paul, so proud. On one occasion, a huge festival was planned in Ephesus to celebrate the worship of a pagan god. It was to be a citywide festival, a parade, all kinds of 
celebrations. And Timothy is a man now in his 70s. Still with the impact of the years with Paul sitting on his shoulder and whispering in his ear and informing his mind and engaging his heart. Timothy at this point said no more. And he chose to make a stand. Tradition in early church history sources tell us that Timothy made a public stand against this pagan idolatry. He cried out the true gospel and he cried out that you must worship the one true living God. You must repent. You must come to Christ. And he was, as an old man, beaten with clubs, dragged from the city and stoned to death for his final act of courage. Like father, like son. I don't know what Paul said to him when he greeted him in heaven, but I'll bet a nickel it had something to do with Timothy, my true child in the faith. Listen, you need role models to be an effective disciple. You must have them. And I don't think you can do a lot better than Timothy. He was a learner at heart. He was a funnel of truth. He was trustworthy to his leaders. He was, had a yearning to be biblical. He had a love for Christ's people. He had a passion for Christ's glory and like many other men since, he had a, gave his life for the gospel. He gave his life for the gospel. And so my hope for you, my hope for Grace Bible Church, is we are filled with those who are preparing, beautifying for the wedding supper of the Lamb. And by preparing, we now prepare as effective disciples. Let's spend a moment in prayer together. Our Father, we come to you now thanking you for the the clarity of the word of God, thanking you so much for the fact that Timothy's life stands as an example to us. And that is our prayer, Lord, that we would all be learners, that we would be funnels of truth, we would be trustworthy to our leadership, we would have a yearning to be biblical, we would have a love for Christ's people, we would have a, a passion for Christ's glory. And, and Lord, I pray for a young man or, or young men that they would give their lives for the gospel to not only do those things as disciples, but be disciple makers as well. Lord, I thank you for the truths presented in the word of God, which are, are stunning to us. And I pray that you would change us, you would beautify us, you would prepare us for the wonderful marriage supper of the Lamb. On that day when we see Christ as he is and we are made fully into his image, when the process of sanctification is complete, we look forward to that, but in the meantime, help us, Lord, to be faithful, to be more and more like Christ, to be effective disciples. For Christ's sake and in his name we pray, amen.